to Mark chapter 14, verse 32 through 42. Mark chapter 14, verse 32 through 42. Uh, So good to have you all here uh, and those streaming uh, online also. My name is Robin Cho. I serve as the pastor here at Westminster. And if you're new here, I'd love to uh, meet you and talk with you afterward uh, directly um, near the front doors at the visitor desk. Hear now God's holy word. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. It's so good to, again, be here with you all. I hope you had a a restful and enjoyable Thanksgiving. Well, Christmas and Advent season is here. Um, And as mentioned before, Advent season is a time to remember Christ's birth, the first arrival, the first Advent some 2,000 years ago. But it's also traditionally to eagerly await his return, his second Advent and second arrival. And maybe you saw the Connect on Thursday and you saw this passage and maybe you looked it up to, to read it before Sunday came around and you were somewhat puzzled about this narrative, what I just read, this Gethsemane narrative at the start of Advent. Shouldn't this be kind of towards March and and spring uh, for Good Friday and Easter Sunday? But as I was thinking about Advent, why did Jesus have to come in the first place? What was the ultimate reason, the ultimate purpose? The Gospels and the New Testament writers tell us to live a perfect life of obedience to die a perfect substitutionary death, and then to be raised on the third day, a continual reference to this in the previous chapters all along in the Gospel of Mark. But remembering his birth is important, and we'll get to all of that this month, because we sometimes forget Jesus' humanity in all of this, that he came 100% truly God, but also he came 100% truly God man, but yet was without sin, and never sinned after his birth once in his life, so that he could be that perfect spotless sacrifice for us, for our atonement and the forgiveness of sins. And as we'll see in this passage, to be the propitiation for those who believe, that's a very important theological word that we even referred to earlier in the service in Isaiah 51, That he, Jesus, was the only one who could avert and satisfy 
the just wrath of God. And we'll explain more of that in a bit. So as odd as this may seem to start Advent with his night-before-death narrative, I pray that we're thankful not just for his entering into this world, but to show the true length to which Jesus would go for love's sake, as we sang about, for the Father's will and for his sheep as he would leave this world. Let us pray. Father, we ask for help in this 25 or 30 minutes ahead of us to illuminate this text for us so that we would be changed in this moment, but also leave here a little bit more transformed in our minds and in our hearts. And yes, even our affections, would you create new ones, new ones that pant for the presence of you, God, and to remember the gospel and to be saturated and basted in the good news over and over again, for this is what we need. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, at the start of chapter 4, Jesus is with his disciples at Bethany, as it says, at Simon the leper's home. And Mary did this most commendable act of love and devotion to her Lord and Savior. She broke the very expensive alabaster jar with all that expensive uh, um, um, perfume to anoint Jesus' head. It's an act he calls in that narrative earlier in chapter 14 to prepare him as was the tradition for burial. Then on Thursday, early evening, Jesus takes his disciples to have their last supper. He institutes communion. All the while Judas was scheming with the chief priests, bartering for more money so that he could betray Jesus and waiting for the opportune time to expose them to these vicious opponents. Jesus then tells the disciples that one of them will betray him. Peter says that, that he would never do that. But Jesus says that he'll do this not once, but three times, even before the next morning. And they'll all say with Peter, we would rather die than deny you, Jesus. Well, later that evening, Jesus and his circle, they go up on Mount Olive to pray. Now look at your verse in 32, chapter 14. And he went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said, sit while he prayed. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, his inner circle, And began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. This uh, concept of watching and praying is found throughout this gospel narrative. It's a presumably quiet part of the mountainside. Jesus takes his inner circle to pray something that was routine and repeated in the life of ministry of Jesus, not just on this night. He would often escape the crowds to commune and pray with his heavenly father. But already in this narration, we are confronted yet again with this weighty theological concept that I don't think we should just rush through. It's the divinity, but yet also humanity of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Not that we don't want to believe this, and I hope that we all believe this, but just trying to wrap your minds around this truth can be challenging. I think it's a lifelong journey. To learn more and more that, yes, Jesus is truly God, but also truly man. And I think we forget his humanity often. We realize this is such a hard mystery to fully grasp all the ins and outs of his complete divinity, but also his complete humanity. But nonetheless, for many of us, it's much easier to accept his divinity than his humanity. It's hard to imagine sometimes Jesus weeping over Lazarus or being hungry and going to the fig tree, 
or sleeping like a baby on a storm-tossed boat in the sea, and so forth. But to be greatly distressed and troubled? You're Jesus! That his soul is so sorrowful that he feels like it's death? But you're Jesus! So this is so amazing, but also so hard to wrap your mind around, and I'm still puzzled over this in some ways. Even this text, even though I've read this on so many occasions and studied this over many years, I'm still left pretty amazed at this event in Gethsemane. And so why was his soul so sorrowful? Well, he knew the time is near to actually take the punishment for the sins of his people, to experience the forsaking of the Father in his death, and to receive the just punishment of sin that we should all have to deal with instead. Realizing yet again in this moment why the first advent had to take place, why he had to come into this dark, dark world, that Jesus would have to take our place instead as our sacrifice of atonement, as the bearer of the final judgment on our depravity and sinfulness, Jesus knows full well the judgment coming to him on the cross. Not so much of the fear of death, for he's been predicting his own death for, throughout the Gospel of Mark, but that weight of judgment to come to him soon. And I think we all take this for granted because God is perfectly holy. This punishment for sin must be exact. Let me just say this again. The punishment for sin cannot be negotiated. There, there's not a discount. There, there's not a, a bartering system. The punishment for sin had to be exact. So think about this. Every time you leal, uh, uh, every time you, I combine lie and steal, I don't know why I did that. Every time you lie, steal, lust, selfish, you're self-righteous in deed and thought, you're idolatrous and so on and so on. Every time we sin, Jesus had to pay for the judgment of those sins on the cross. There's a remembrance of every time we make an offense against God very well explained by Tyler early in the service about what sin is. Oh, we have to also think back at Calvary that he had to pay for that judgment for that sin also. And so can you imagine the weight he bore on the cross for all your sins, all my sins? I mean, nobody knows myself better than myself on this planet. That's a ton of sins. If I'm thinking of my whole life, or let's collect all the sins collectively in this room. That's a ton of sins. But to pay the penalty of every sin, of every believer from the beginning of Genesis 3 onward, you can't calculate such things. Well then, of course, in Jesus' true humanity, his soul will be filled with sorrow and be deeply troubled. He is not worried about the concept of dying. But the sheer weight of the sacrifice, the judgment of God upon him on the cross. That as 2 Corinthians 5 says, he who knew no sin became sin for us on that cross. But I liked what one theologian points out. If Jesus wasn't completely human and only he was only divine, then there would be no evidence of his humanity in his life. There would be no anguish at the Garden of Gethsemane. But especially here in such a dark night of the soul, we would have to think something is off. 
If Jesus would never show any hunger, thirst, discomfort, sadness, frustration, and here in this narrative, sorrow, we would say something is off if we believe that he is truly man, if he wasn't experiencing such things. But what about Jesus' disciples, his companions? The inner circle is part of the overall point of this passage. His inner circle have no real idea about what is to come, but at least his most trusted three should support him, remain, be watchful, and pray, but we'll see their, the, the ultimate utter failure. Look at verse 35. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And so if Jesus were only divine and then only took on some shell of a human being, a heresy dealt with many centuries ago, there would be no falling to the ground with a troubled soul. There would only be this emotionless, almost robotic march to the cross if that were the case. But no, the prayer is very raw, but yet very human and very real. Mark gives us both the Aramaic and the Greek word for father this intimate calling to his heavenly father in this prayerful communion, communing with him. Could there be another way? Could there be another way? Could this circumstance and heavy hour pass him? Could he just not die? And he asks of something that, again, I think it's okay to say, wow, what a concept to think through. Jesus Christ asking for the cup to be removed from him. Now, you've heard this here before, but the word cup was a very well-known symbol in the Old Testament context that denoted the wrath and judgment of God. One example is Ezekiel 23, verse 31. You have gone the way of your sister, therefore I will give her cup into your hand. Thus says the Lord God, you shall drink your sister's cup that is deep and large. You shall be laughed at and held in derision, for it contains much a cup of horror and desolation. Jeremiah 25, 15. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Habakkuk 2. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. And of course, our earlier text in Isaiah fully describes this concept of the cup of judgment and wrath. It's interesting that many of the references on the cup of judgment are for enemies who defied the one true God. And yet Jesus is the one to take the cup of judgment and wrath that we as disobedient, rebellious, sinful people should have drunk. As Ephesians 2 says, we were by nature objects of wrath, enemies of God until Christ Jesus intervened and saved us. It's probably one of my favorite passages Starting in verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. The only possibility to become children of God, instead of enemies of God, was Jesus had to come as truly man, and then to take the cup of wrath that we truly deserve, and showed us the grace that we never, ever could earn or deserve. This is no trivial thing. 
Years ago, I was at a get-together with friends, and somebody had the great idea of playing a game where the loser would have to drink a grotesque concoction of various ingredients from the refrigerator. Mayo with hot sauce, maybe some toothpaste or something like that. Some of you guys are like, this sounds good. And so one by one, people would have to eventually drink this disgusting cup. Thankfully, I never had to. And I'll save you the details of all the variations. And most of them were Asian. So if you open an Asian person's fridge, I mean, there's some things in there. <laughs> but I think at one point, one of the chivalrous, chivalrous men offered to drink the cup instead of his spouse. And you could tell she was just melting. And she was like, oh, no, it's my turn. And he said, I will take that for you. And he, and he drank it. And we all laughed. We all kind of applauded at that sacrifice. But as noble as that was, we can't compare this. We cannot look to Jesus' sacrifice as some inconvenient, temporary, gross type of drink. A slow clap for taking something we didn't really want to drink ourselves. And dare I say, perhaps as the years go by, Jesus taking the cup on our behalf has turned into something more trivial to us. And not utterly transforming of our minds and earth shattering to our hearts. Yet again, Jesus in his humanity, in the depth of his anguish, prays, remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will, O God. Jesus is the eternal son of God. He didn't take on that identity at his birth some 2,000. He, was, he is the eternal son of God. He knew the plan to fulfill the covenant of redemption was his and his alone. John 6, 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He knew the plan. And so before we jump too quickly to the nativity scene, and we'll, we'll get there this month, embrace the true reason and purpose of the first advent. Jesus, the only one who could take the cup on our behalf. Verse 37, and he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter to temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. One of the main characteristics of the Gospel of Mark is the nature of discipleship and the utter failure of the disciples. We see ourselves all the time in the, narr in the narrative, in the life of these disciples. We would fail just as miserably as they did. The late, wonderful theologian R.C. Sproul once wrote, even though they were so determined, and perhaps you've experienced this, even though they were so determined to be steadfast and not fall away, the disciples were incapable of one hour of true discipleship. As I alluded to earlier, the phrase, watch and pray, in chapter 13, they were taught to be watchful to the end of days, but clearly they can't even stand to watch here. Prayer seems to be part of the major aspects of fleeing temptation by the power of the Spirit. This is not a catch-all, invincible formula that if you pray five minutes that you're not going to fall into sin for that day. But we definitely fall into sin when the pattern of our lives is to choose not to pray. Verse 39, and again he went and prayed saying the same words, and again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. I think we've all been there before. Either in personal prayer or in corporate prayer, our, our eyes get too heavy. 
And people might be sharing their hearts and no matter how hard you try, you're, you just can't concentrate and you're knocked out. Years ago, I remember teaching some leaders, not here, and there was about 15 people kind of circled around me and I was teaching on the parables of Jesus. And this particular one was to be truly prepared and, and to not fall asleep, that was the parable. And so these leaders of 15 were then gonna go to their small group leaders, uh, small groups and teach this lesson. And lo and behold, one of the leaders started to snore, which I thought was amazing because we were sitting kind of in, you know, uh, you know, cross-legged in a circle of about 15 people. And I don't know how he did this upright, but he just started to snore. And I knew this guy. I, I, I knew that he cared about this ministry. He loved the Lord. But sometimes you just succumb to your flesh. Or maybe I was just really boring. We'll never know. I never want to ask. We conclude with verse 41, and he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough, the hour has come. The son of man is betrayed in the hands of sin. Arise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Judas, of course, is at hand. He's brought the chief priests and leaders to come to arrest Jesus and eventually leads to Jesus's crucifixion on the cross. And I'm so thankful that in our season of Advent, we can truly remember why Jesus had to come, that as he did finish that work on the cross, and that he was wonderfully, marvelously raised again in three days. 2,000 years later, we can repeat in this Advent season, it's already finished. The work of God to reconcile and redeem sinful rebels to become loved children of the Almighty, if there is faith, oh, we embrace that it is already finished finished. I, wanna, I want you to rehearse this whole month and the four Advent Sundays leading up to Christmas Day. I want you to rehearse what theologian Sinclair Ferguson once wrote. He said, Gethsemane was unique. We won't go through our own Gethsemane. Jesus has already done that for us. Let that sink in this month as we reflect. Gethsemane was unique. We don't go through our own Gethsemane. Jesus has already done that for us. Jesus accomplished what we could never accomplish for ourselves. If we were there and boldly cry out, no, Jesus, you can't do this. We will go to the cross instead of you. That would have done nothing for our sins. Nothing for the plan of redemption. I, I, I know a lot of you guys by now, my fourth year here, I know a lot of you guys, if you were there, would say, if that's the plan, then let me go instead of you. But that would do nothing. This had to be Jesus. This had to be the spotless lamb. This had to be the eternal son, known from eternity past that he would be the one to redeem the people of God. And so thanks be to God that Jesus went through the Gethsemane experience so that he could go to the cross with full acknowledgement and assurance of the will of God and fulfill his perfect ultimate plan. But as a reminder, Ferguson goes on and encourages us to respond to this great act of love in a certain way. He says, quote, even though we don't have to go through our own Gethsemane, we must learn to place our feet in the footsteps of faithfulness which he planted there if we are to be his disciples, close quote. Do you really want to be a disciple of Christ? When's the last time you woke up and said, 
Do I want to live as a disciple of Christ? Do I really want to follow? Maybe you did this morning, but then maybe Monday through Saturday, it doesn't cross your mind. Do I really want to be a disciple and follower of Jesus Christ? I'm not saying, do I want to earn a little bit more so that I can get into heaven? Or I want to be uh, pursuing righteousness in a certain way that God will say, okay, I will keep you saved. That's not what I'm saying. Do you wake up and say, do I want to follow you today? Do I want to be your disciple? Or are we only good with religious sentimental, sentimentality and seasonal and temporal cheer? I'm tempted by that too. I go to the mall and I, I've seen everyone just so happy to, well, not so happy, some, some people, but you know, just ready to shop and there's all, there's all the music and Walgreens is putting out you know, Christmas stuff in, in September and you're just like, this, this is the season, we're getting ready. I, 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 I confess, I could be weak in that area too. Religious sentimentality, temporal cheer. But if we believe by the grace of God Oh, this door is wide open to then again enjoy the depths of joy in the Father's love. Because Jesus took the cup. Jesus took the cup. Those who believe are no longer strangers and enemies of God, but we get this great thing called this new life in Christ. And that the same spirit that raised Christ from the grave allows us to also cry out, Abba, Father. Paul says in Galatians 4, 6, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. How is this possible? Because Jesus took the cup. And so this year, personally, I want to go back to the basics. I personally want to reflect in our Advent season this year, yes, in his magnificent birth, but his magnificent sacrifice for you and for me to remember the cup, to remember the wrath of God that he drunk to the dregs. Well, what are dregs? Those are those little, you know, if you're a coffee drinker, if you're a tea drinker, or in, in, in the past traditions of medicinal drinks, and that the, the little kind of uh, things just kind of sink at the bottom and you kind of drink it, but you don't want to drink the bottom stuff that, that's bitter, that doesn't taste great. Jesus had to drink it all to the dregs, as Isaiah was alluding to he drank all of the wrath not most of it so that robin i've drunk 90 percent of the wrath of god you're gonna have to experience 10 percent. you're gonna have to earn it you're gonna have to earn it and feel it in your life and then in your death you're gonna get that bitter percentage to really realize what you have done to offend god no that's not the gospel the good news is a hundred percent he drank all of it the cup of wrath and judgment. So that what? If I believe, oh, I believe that he is the son, that he is the savior. Oh, if I place my trust in him and not my own strength or ability of righteousness, oh, I'm considered right with him. I'm considered right with him if I believe in his person and finished work. And yes, as that great Aramaic word, Maranatha, entails, come, Jesus, come. Return quickly, our Lord. This is what we need to be saying, not just in Advent season, but all the days of our lives. Maranatha, Lord, would you come? And so may this season of Advent be filled with hope, joy, and peace, something that we'll repeat often this month 
But if things are really difficult right now, if things are really hard, there's suffering, there's trials, you might be going through a mental thing or some crisis or some illness, look to Jesus who went through everything for you. Look to Jesus who experienced that sorrow in a way that we'll never understand at Gethsemane. To be cheered up to say, wait, Jesus understands. He wasn't this robotic thing that came and went to the cross to go back to his father. No, he experienced everything that we have ever experienced. And so he can sympathize with us. He could care for us. He could shepherd us. He understands. He really does this. Why? Because of his true humanity. And so if you'll join me this month, let's remember that and go to him and trust in him again. Let's bow our heads and pray. Thank you, God, for the son, Jesus. As you remember his birth, we also remember why he had to come. As your word says in Romans 8, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Thank you, God, that you are the giver of life and all good things. Thank you that you sent your son to be light in darkness, hope for dark times. Thank you in the darkness of that garden in Gethsemane, O came out the most marvelous and wonderful picture of light that we could ever imagine. Help us to respond by living in union to Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit to take advantage of all that you have graciously given us so that we could live for your glory as the gospel continually remains in our hearts. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.